Welcome to the Recess Room Podcast. Five, four, three, two, one, fire! So hi and welcome back to the Recess Room Podcast. I'm Simon Lang. And I'm Rob Fenwick. And I'm going to be as bold to say as I think this is probably, although it's going to be a shorty, our most important podcast yet. Our most important podcast yet? You crazy man? Yeah, on the on the grand scale of importance, our podcasts aren't really that important at all. But for Fair us, <laughs> this is this is a big topic. So we are going to be talking about a drug. Oh yes, a drug that everybody uses all of the time. Who's involved? Alexander acid. Involved with healthcare? No, not morphine. The, no, antibiotic. No. What then? You're breathing it right now, sunshine. <laughs> Oxygen. Ooh. I know, fascinating stuff. So a lot of you will probably be aware that the British Thoracic Society has just published its update, its new guideline on oxygen use in healthcare and emergency settings. And we thought it was really important just to run through this. And although a fair amount of this is going to be old stomping ground and you're going to be really familiar with it, it's the sort of things that is definitely worth us just reminding ourselves on. Having a look at any new evidence that's out there, there are definitely some key points in there that we won't all be familiar with. And then just making sure that we disseminate that through our practice. Sounds like a really good plan, Simon. Sounds worthwhile. No, definitely. And and I don't know about you, but oxygen delivery and usage is one of those things that I think really reflects how much accuracy there is in the care that we're giving. And I absolutely hate seeing patients who are just left on 15 litres non-rebreathe for hours and hours. And you walk past and you see that their oxygen saturations are, you know, are 100%. I love to see it when we're being more scientific and we're trying to really titrate our oxygen delivery to the patient and, and what they really need. So, yeah, this is a, a great opportunity just to run through it again. Okay, sounds great. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> I'm pretty buzzed up about this. <laughs> You're um, pumped. <laughs> Right, okay, so so where does this need for this guideline actually come? Well, the BTS audit in 2015 looked at oxygen delivery and 42% of those patients had no accompanying prescription. Now, I remember several pushes in departments that I've worked in for prescribing oxygen and it's one of those things when someone mentions it, you just think, oh, God, really? <laughs> you cannot be serious. Surely this is something we all understand and the purpose of prescribing it is well over the top. But when we go through some of the effects of it, actually, it will become clear why, you know, really we should be prescribing it and really adhering to some strict management with it. So, yeah, nearly half patients in that audit had no accompanying prescription. I'm amazed it it was only that low, to be honest. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Yeah, not reflective of our practice, obviously. Um, no. When it is prescribed, then it didn't always correlate with delivery, as you may expect. And a third of patients, this is the really important bit, I think, a third of patients were actually outside the target saturation range, 10% below and 22% above. Oh, you can believe it, though, can't you? Yeah, no, definitely. Definitely, and face validity and it, is, is huge. You know, it's not it's not criticizing practice. Emergency departments or healthcare systems are incredibly busy, but yeah, that's it's really really important to note. A third of our patients outside the target range, and there are very good reasons that we've got target ranges. So yeah, there's a a huge scope for improving on our practice. So we're going to cover 
the document itself. Obviously, the most important thing that you could do is to put down this podcast and go and have a read of the document itself. There will be more of a podcast, though, so we would be quite grateful if you carry on listening to it. But no, go, <laughs> go and have a read of it. I think it's just a mere 100 pages, but there is more of... It is, but you're saying that. So I, I actually I skim-read through this, and it is actually a really readable document. It's it's short, punchy segments that are useful, as, it, as in don't be put off by it being 100 pages long. It is worth having a look at, genuinely is. There is something on every page that you'll be happy that you picked it up for. Yeah, absolutely. So we're going to cover the main points of this. We are also going to cover some of the pre-hospital aspects of this guideline. Now, that isn't because we're experts in pre-hospital management. We are definitely not. But we do appreciate, and it was really good to see, actually, on some recent feedback, that there is a lot of paramedics and pre-hospital, um, pre-hospital providers that listen to podcasts. So we just thought it might be nice if we tried to sum that up for you in this, uh, in this podcast. Simon, so start us off. So what's normal? What are my oxygen saturations right now? Hopefully. Okay, and as we said, we are, so we're going to work up from basics and get a bit more complicated. But just for starters, normal oxygen saturations in a healthy young adult is approximately 96 to 98. And that will dwindle slightly. There'll be a minor decrease with age as patients get a bit older. A really key fact, actually, that's in this document is that healthy subjects desaturate to 90% during nighttime. So they state we should be cautious interpreting a single oximetry reading in a sleeping patient if it's just for a short duration overnight, because that is potentially quite normal. Okay, that's interesting. That's good to know for those late night calls to uh, the wards in the night. No, definitely. And, you know, obviously to be taken in the context of the patient, if it's something that's tailing off and down, then that's a bit more worrying. But no, short periods of lower saturations at night are completely normal. Mm, Okay. So how hypoxic do you have to be to have a change in your, say, mental status? So do you have to have it? Is it really low? A little bit low? Okay, so... You know, this would hopefully be one of those things that as somebody becomes a bit more hypoxic, we can really go off their cognitive function to see whether or not they are becoming hypoxic, especially if we're not quite believing the monitors, as sometimes might be the case. But that would be a dangerous thing to do. So the mean value at which people get an impaired mental status is down as low as 64%, which is frighteningly low, actually. And there is no evidence at all of mental status change before SATs get to about 84%. And a loss of consciousness, well, that won't come, according to this document, until a mean value of 56% saturation. So really, really low. 56%? That is horrendously low. Okay, so effectively you can't um, take anything away from hypoxemia and mental status changes for the percentages of patients that we're dealing with because we ain't going to wait until it gets that low, are we? Spot on. Spot on. Excellent. Okay, so what are our overall aims of oxygen therapy then? As in, what are we actually trying to achieve? Obviously, we want to get them numbers better, but what is it that we're ultimately trying to get? What do they want us to do with the BTS? So effectively, as we mentioned earlier, we need to really be targeting specific numbers, specific saturations in our patients. And as they say, alleviating breathlessness only in those patients that are actually hypoxic. Um, And that might sound like a pretty standard you know a pretty commonsensical thing to say but really it is very easy isn't it and someone says that they're short of breath just to slap on oxygen it is yeah yeah it might seem like a really benign thing to do but actually it's got quite serious consequences um in doing that specifically for for longer periods of time so 
let's just run through the evidence that has come out and you know, the real reasons why hyperoxia is a bad thing. Now, we're probably all aware that COPD and some at risk of type 2 respiratory failure, which we'll just run through the list in a minute, you know, putting those on oxygen for a long period of time is associated with some patients retaining carbon dioxide, becoming acidotic and going into respiratory failure and essentially having a respiratory arrest. So if we've got a patient in front of us with COPD or, or one that we, we know might be prone to type 2 respiratory failure, we're probably quite good about not just cranking up that oxygen and thinking a little bit more about it. But is it those different outcomes that we never really see from the patient in front of us that it can really affect and certainly you know drilled into us wasn't it that if someone's got a myocardial infarction you whack them on a load of oxygen and and we're not taking away the fact that in someone who's critically unwell you shouldn't put them on a lot of oxygen but if they've got normal oxygen levels then it's it's now been shown that there's an increase in creatinine chylase levels in STEMI there's an increase in infarct size shown on MR scans as well at three months so that's sort of associations that that are seen but what about other things that have been seen well hyperoxemia is associated with increased mortality in several ITU studies it's associated with worsening systolic myocardial performance it's associated with absorption atelectasis even at FiO2s of 30 to 50 percent it's associated with intrapulmonary shunting post-operative hypoxemia coronary vasoconstriction increased systemic vascular resistance reduced cardiac index and possible reperfusion injury after myocardial infarctions so (laughs) a huge amount of things are potentially made worse by having a patient who has hyperoxia is that right yeah no that that is right and and again repeating myself here and i know that you'll all understand this but we are definitely not saying or be scared of getting up to normal oxygen saturations but it is the casual leaving people on a phenomenal amount of oxygen for a long period of time when they don't need it not during the initial few minutes of of assessment but those patients are just left on it in the department and it's really important that we're accurate and precise in the way that we deliver oxygen to them because the evidence base is growing and growing Excellent. Yeah. And you're quite right. It is those patients that are left in a major's cubicle on 15 litres of oxygen that are the ones that are really going to suffer from this, aren't they? And you just need to get that number absolutely spot on for that patient that you're that you're looking after, don't you? And that's the important thing with it. Yeah. And it is a completely appropriate thing, isn't it? The thought is that giving oxygen is a safe thing to do. So leaving patients on it is a safe thing to do, especially in emergency departments when we're really, really busy. But I think we just need to be a bit more aware of it and and spread that wealth of knowledge. Okay, so let's just run through, Rob. Who are those patients then? You know, not just the COPD patients, but who are those patients, just to recap, that are at risk of CO2 retention and acidosis if we're giving them this higher oxygen level than they actually need? Yeah, so I mean, the, the BTS gardens are quite specific about this, and this is one of the sections that's really good to have a read through. So it's not just about those with COPD, it's about the chronic hypoxic lung disease, so COPD, uh, cystic fibrosis, bronchiectasis. It's also those with chest wall disease. So we see this quite regularly. So the kyphoscoliosis or the thoracoplasty, which you don't tend to see anymore, but occasionally you might get the odd one or two patients through. Um, other things might be neuromuscular disease, more morbid obesity um, with hypoventilatory syndrome. I mean, I see this more and more, you know, coming into our practice that actually these patients that are at risk of CO2 retention 
haven't got a diagnosis of COPD they may just be very large patients that hypoventilate when they especially when they go to sleep and and that's a huge thing that we need to be aware of isn't it yeah just to reinforce not just those COPD patients but but those ones that you've just mentioned there as well okay so that is going to determine what the oxygen target range is so if they've got any of those as mentioned above then they are at risk of type 2 respiratory failure and if that's the case their target saturations on your SATs probe is 88 to 92 percent or they may as they demonstrate in the guideline they may carry an alert card because some patients may have a slightly different target but if in doubt and they got the above then try to aim for 88 to 90 percent in the rest of the population not at risk of type 2 respiratory failure then we're just aiming for 94 to 98 percent okay so i mean that's awesome because obviously we've got some hard figures there in our mind so 94 to 98 for everyone else apart from those that we've previously mentioned with the o2 retention risk and we're going to go for 88 to 92 in those now what in terms of delivery devices do they go into any depth about the type or um, sort of method that we should be using to deliver that oxygen yeah so from a, a simplistic oxygen delivery point of view so just a delivery device we're looking either at nasal specs um which is becoming more and more fashionable and things like apneic oxygen but you know just simple oxygen delivery by nasal specs we're talking about face mask we're talking about venturi face masks which are those that give a specific concentration of oxygen delivery and then obviously those face masks with a reservoir bag and non-rebreathe mask that are able to give the highest concentration of oxygen possible so just to mention a couple of things so nasal specs so they can actually give a relatively high delivery of oxygen to patients and it talks about the 40% venturi mask equivalent but obviously not as accurate as five or six liters via nasal specs which is interesting actually because I, I didn't actually think that they were quite at the same level no I didn't either but okay that's good to know titrating down those nasal specs a little bit as well so one liter is going to give you about 24 percent and two liters about 28 obviously then we've got our non-rebreathe masks on at 15 liters of oxygen and they're going to give somewhere between about 60 and 80 percent oxygen okay so i'm assuming um, that's the delivery devices but what about our initial approach to these patients so in terms of when you go in and you see a patient for the first time in terms of your approach to oxygen delivery, can you just talk me through what's going through your mind? Yeah, so as we've just said earlier, you need to need to be aware of those lists of those at risk of type 2 respiratory failure. If they're not, then we're going to be looking, if they're under 94% saturations, to give them some oxygen. Now, in a pre-hospital environment, this isn't going to be possible. But if you're in hospital, you then need to perform an arterial blood gas. If they're acidotic... If their PCO2 has gone up, we need to be thinking about whether or not we should be ventilating those patients. Now, that's obviously a huge spectrum that patients can present and we need to be treating their underlying problem. But yes, if it's less than 94%, in effect, give them oxygen, titrate that to 94 to 98%, do a blood guess and then look to repeat that and tailor your management to it. If they are at risk of a type 2 respiratory failure, again, we then need to be aiming for 88 to 92%. We need to be making sure that we get there, so not titrating it really slowly, but we need to give them oxygen, aim for that level, and then titrate down so we're on the lowest venturi mask or nasal specs to ensure that we're delivering just the right amount of oxygen to get them 88 to 92%. If, however, they're one of those group that's got a PCO2 when we do a blood gas that's low or normal, so less than 6, we can actually 
aim to give them saturations between 94 and 98%, but repeat the arterial blood gas within 30 to 60 minutes. So as you say, they might fall into that list of those at risk of type 2 respiratory failure, but if their gas is fine, their PCO2 is all right on their gas, then actually we can aim to treat them with the higher saturation target. Okay, but presumably keep an eye for any um, sort of hypoventilatory episodes or anything, any worsening, because you might need to repeat that gas then, I guess. Absolutely. One thing we should also mention is that if patients are tachypneic and they're taking over 30 breaths per minute, on the Venturi masks, there is the flow rate that's needed to provide the FiO2. But if it's over 30 breaths per minute, then you need to be aware that you should actually turn up that flow rate above that mentioned on the mask because you won't be able to deliver that FiO2 if they're breathing that quickly. And and that Really? Yeah. And that actually is one of those things that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. So it might be the only nugget Absolutely. that you take from the podcast. But if they're really tachypneic, you're trying to give them a good FiO2, turn up the flow rate. They will still only get that FiO2 that's actually on the mask. So if it's 35 or 40 percent, they will still only get that. But it does need to be high enough to ensure that we're actually giving it. Oh, that's a nice little nugget. Yeah, definitely didn't know that. That's cool. That's good. Thanks for that. So you promised us a bit of pre-hospital as well as in-hospital points specific to this. So what pre-hospital oxygen use tips have you got for us from the guidance? Okay, so this, again, taken straight from the guidance. Okay, so the things that really of note, I guess, are that they say that a sudden reduction in 3% of saturations in the target range should prompt a fuller assessment because it's an indication that that patient is acutely unwell. As we would expect, it says that pulse oximetry should be available in all locations in which oxygen is being delivered. Key to sort of the the age range part of the, the document, they say that some patients over the age of 70, when clinically stable, may have oxygen saturation between 92 to 94%. Now, this needs to be taken in the context of how they're presenting but a lot of these patients don't require oxygen therapy unless it falls below the level that is known to be normal for that individual or obviously if they appear to be acutely unwell then trying to take that judgment of 92% being normal for them if they appear to be in respiratory distress isn't a safe thing to do but know that as we mentioned earlier an increase of age the normal saturations for that patient may well tail off okay patients with COPD now this, these are much more difficult to manage pre-hospitally because you don't have the benefit of the gas. But they say that they should initially be given oxygen via a 24% venturi at 2 to 4 litres per minute or a 28% mask at a flow rate of 4 litres per minute. Or finally, nasal cannulae at 1 to 2 litres per minute and again aiming for 88 to 92%. So they seem to be really pushing Again, that we need to be aiming for normal oxygen saturations in that group, but but really trying to make sure that we're not getting hyperoxia, especially in this group of COPD patients that are at high risk of getting complications from that. Again, interesting, um, and this reflects some of the other BTS guidelines that are out there, especially on pneumothoraces, um, about the presumption of having lung disease in, lo- in long-term smokers. So from a pre-hospital point of view, patients who are over the age of 50, long-term smokers and with a history of short, shortness of breath on exertion and no other cause for their breath, breathlessness, they should be treated as having COPD. Mm, okay. So almost a presumption you know, that these patients have been smoking for a long period of time, then actually we're going to decrease their target range of saturations for 88 to 92%. Okay, fair enough. I presume that's I presume that's going to be more for 
those that we're transporting to hospital, as in you couldn't comfortably leave someone at home with SATs of 88% without a diagnosis of COPD, though, could you? So, it, it you know, it doesn't explicitly say that. And I think somebody no. that's calling calling okay. up acutely unwell, then that's completely reasonable to say that. But no, we're talking about target oxygen saturations whilst we're treating those patients. Yeah, fair enough. Makes sense. And lastly, that awkward position. So you need to give that patient nebulizers. You haven't got any air to drive their nebulizers on. They talk about whether or not you can give oxygen to those patients and sort of risk that hyperoxia. Well, they state that in patients who are known to have COPD, you can drive their nebulizers on oxygen, but you should limit it to a duration of six minutes in patients who are known to have COPD. Now, that's obviously limited if their oxygen levels aren't normal. If they continue to be hypoxic, then obviously a delivery of oxygen is a really good thing to do. Okay, so that is it for the podcast. So just in summary, there are probably a few pearls in this document that you should go and have a look at yourself. It is really well put together and I think it will make a big difference to patients. Although not the sexiest of topics, you know, oxygen delivery, when it is given accurately, can make a huge difference to patient outcomes. There will be more and more evidence, no good doubt, that comes out on this topic. 94 to 98 for those are not at risk of type 2 respiratory failure. 88 to 92 for those who are at risk of type 2 respiratory failure until you can get a gas on those patients. And then, you know, in the critically unwell, obviously give them oxygen to start with. But once you find this to be above their target range, then titrate it down safely and effectively. Obviously, if those patients are still hypoxic, then titrate it up and get them to normoxia as quickly as possible. That's brilliant, Simon. Thanks for guiding us through that topic. It was really useful, I thought. Awesome. Right. Well, we will be back with another pure evidence-based podcast for you really soon. So take care of yourselves and we will speak to you soon. Speak to you soon. You cannot be serious. <laughs>